if you've ever listened to a podcast or read one of my books and thought, I wish I knew if that was the right thing for my body, or how could I make that work with my schedule and responsibilities, I've got something for you. A new workbook by me coming out late spring. My Perfect Movement Plan, the Move Your DNA all-day workbook, is for your specific situation because you are going to finish writing it. When you're finished, you will have a guide to a personalized movement diet that nourishes your body in the ways that you need it to. My Perfect Movement Plan is available for pre-order now, and if you pre-order from the publisher, there's a bonus, a free ticket to an upcoming online workshop, Spot the Missing Micronutrients. It's a 90-minute class where you'll learn about five often missing movement micronutrients, and these are subtle movements of the body. In this case, we'll be looking in the shoulders and the hips and the feet that are often tied to pain or injury in those areas. In this workshop, I'll also show you how to supplement with exercise vitamins. I'm putting air quotes around vitamins and how to adjust your regular movement so exercise supplementation isn't as necessary. Pre-order now at mpmpbook.com. That's my perfect movement plan, mpmpbook.com, and you'll automatically receive a bonus class ticket. But wait, there's more. Um, I'm going to be drawing three names from these pre-orders, and these peeps are going to get a small group session with me to go over your perfect movement plan. So you can ask me questions, and we'll brainstorm your specific situation on a Zoom call together. I cannot wait. So head over to mpmpbook.com for all the details on the book and the bonuses. Read through the frequently asked questions, order the book, get the class, and then get moving. I'm so excited to share this workbook. It's the missing puzzle piece you've been waiting for, and it's so very actionable. It's the Move Your DNA podcast with Katie Bowman. I'm Katie Bowman, biomechanist and author of Move Your DNA and a bunch of other books about movement. This show is about how movement works on the cellular level, how to change your position as you move and why you might want to, and how movement works in the world, also known as movement ecology. All bodies are welcome. Are you ready to get moving? Hello, friends. I am so very excited to introduce many of you to the work of Dr. Ihi Heke. But before I do, I'm going to quickly answer a listener question from Ted in Denver. I've been running minimal for 10 years. I think I'm the last guy with Vibram's five fingers. I also do CrossFit in minimalist shoes, all pain-free and smooth sailing. However, I added karate a year ago and got a dynamic workstation at the same time. And after those two changes, the plantar fasciitis came roaring back. If I stand for long periods and also after karate, my feet just ache. Now I'm in a sleep boot arch supports, etc. back to square one. I've also noticed some low back ache if I stand for over 10 minutes on hard, flat surfaces. Is there information in one of your books or a specific podcast slash blog episode that I could refer to in order to help me figure out how to find and correct the cause of this problem and go back to my former barefoot slash semi-barefooted life? Ted, ouch, I'm sorry. Okay, so I'm reading this and I'm thinking a bunch of different things. So I don't know what your running is like. So minimal running, it could be off-road. It might be cement, 
I'm going to assume that your CrossFit's probably done inside. I could be wrong, but that would be my assumption is I'm not certain of the consumption of moving on hard, flat, and level that you've had. So here's the thing. It's interesting with, I've been doing this for, you know, this long period of time, and now it's bothering me where we think just because we've always done it, that that means it'll always be fine. But rather, you can always do something and be slowly kind of like slowly working through a tissue or creating accumulative tissue damage, which then appears and you're like, I want to go back to doing the thing. But maybe there was something all along that was kind of in in process a little bit. I'm not able to know that. And maybe you're not able to know that as well. But so these are just the things that you're going to think about is, was I running varied courses in various ways? Or would I have had like the same type of foot strike over and over again? I'm also not sure if you have plantar fasciitis in one or both feet, because when it's in a single foot versus both, then then I'd kind of be like, okay, well, given that, that your structure is fairly evenly distributed, there's a, a way that you're loading one foot versus the other. If it's both feet, then that could not be the case. Then you also, though, note that you added, at one glance, it looks like you added two things, karate and a dy- dynamic workstation. But that could also be if you converted it to hours, that could mean that to your feet, you added six extra hours of daily motion. So maybe if you had a form issue, meaning a distribution of mass, like so not only just like the arrangement of your pieces, but the mass distribution that the arrangement of pieces creates, now you are loading that maybe imbalanced structure. Just That just means that you're not distributing your weight evenly on both sides. You added a tremendous volume of load to your feet. So if you had some pre-existing damage that at that lower volume of movement you were tolerating, but this greater volume caused you to then get back to what you're saying, square one. So then I'm wondering, did you have plantar fasciitis before? All these things, if we just, if I could just, maybe I'll interview you for my next episode. But anyway, this is just, this will be helpful for a lot of people to begin to think through their own situations. So you did add quite a bit of volume. So I would look there and I assume that in doing karate, you are barefoot. So is that your only barefoot activity? So then the question is, is there information in one of your books? So I guess at first glance, I'm thinking whole body barefoot because the exercises in that would help you see, you know, if in your resting position, if you are more on one side versus the other. So can you can you start doing some of these few simple exercises to help you figure out if you're distributing the work of moving your body forward when you're walking or running evenly through both sides? Or do you have one side that's kind of like rowing harder a little bit, I guess, so to speak? Play with terrain. Maybe not when you're in such an acute state, but is there a way to vary the load to your feet once you're better? So try whole body barefoot. There's a couple of alignment snacks on feet. It's it's challenging to learn movement through text. So if you're not a text lover, I mean, I do think that there's enough stuff in whole body barefoot that would give you, you know, like calf raises, you know, can you do some calf raises? I call them elevators because instead of just going up and down, I want you to be like looking at your ankles, 
in a mirror to make sure as you go up and down, you're not noticing your ankles dropping out to the side. And then you can check out the couple of foot snacks and start playing around with those, including using a ball on the feet. So in the end, all those correctives are simply trying to, they're trying to diversify the load that your feet are experiencing. And so another thing, thinking back, you've been wearing minimal shoes for a long time, but I don't know what correctives you did before you got in there. So that's the thing with shoes is shoes, shoes offer a bit of support in kind of like a hard, flat world, you know, when you don't have a ton of foot strength and maybe because we sit so much, even that much hip or leg strength. So when we transition to them over time without adding that strength back in, you can see you know, kind of an issue, but you've been wearing it for 10 years. So that's, that's quite a bit of time. So anyway, try that, check that out. And hopefully it helps. Thank you, Ted, for asking. And thank you to our dynamic collective for supporting listener questions. Collective includes Unshoes, Earthrunner, Ben Design, My Mayu Outdoor Boots, and Soft Star Shoes. For more information on these companies, go to the show notes, click listen, click podcast transcripts. They are linked at the top of the show notes. Okay, I cannot wait any longer. Let me introduce you to Ihi. I met Dr. Ihi Heke at the Ancestral Health Symposium in Aotearoa, also known as New Zealand, last year and got to spend some time with him and his family. While he wears many hats, he is currently a health and physical education consultant. He is involved in a number of national and international projects, including working with Johns Hopkins University, where he was funded by the Global Obesity Prevention Center to conduct a study using traditional indigenous health approaches alongside systems dynamics, which we'll talk a little bit about, a lot about actually in the show. Dr. Hecke is also working with Washington University in St. Louis to develop training programs that use social group model building from indigenous and non-indigenous perspectives. He wrote the Atua Matua Maori Health Framework that has been gaining recognition globally in Japan, Ireland, Canada, and the U.S. Dr. Heke is a strong supporter of mountain and river connections that can be converted into traditional physical activity and training opportunities, suggesting that gains in health can be incidental outcomes that begin with connections to rivers and mountains. Kia ora ihi. Welcome to Move Your DNA. That means um, hello back to you in Māori. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that was good. I was rushing to get my Māori dictionary so I could respond appropriately. I'm very excited that you are here. There's a lot that we could talk about, but I have to kind of narrow it down to be respectful of time. So there's two things that I wanted to start off talking about. And the first is... What is a Atua Matua Māori health framework is the first part of the question. And the second part of the question is, how does that relate to this line in your bio, which is Dr. Hike is a strong supporter of mountain and river connections that can be converted into traditional physical activity and training opportunities, suggesting that gains in health can be incidental outcomes that begin with connections to rivers and mountains. Well, it sounds fairly high-powered when you say it like that, but I don't know that it is. Um, we, as Māori, are the youngest indigenous population on the planet. Um, New Zealand has only been populated for something like maybe 1,500 years. 
It's a difficult island to get to. No natural currents or winds push this way. Um, but Māori were moving all through the Pacific, and this was one of the final places that we came to rest. Um, because of that, in terms of indigenous views on the world, um, we were the last to have the colonising effects of the English here. So we have held on to our customs and traditions fairly strongly. And when we disagree with our government, we tell them fairly vocally. And if we still don't like what they're doing, we build our own and design our own um, Māori health frameworks, such as the Atua Matua um, option, as was something that I built in 2014 more to monitor my own approaches to how I work with Māori communities so that I wasn't further institutionalising or colonising their minds by using uh, university-based concepts with Māori communities and embedding those colonised views even further. So uh, in 2014, I looked at uh, some of the environmental representatives that we as Māori use a lot. We call those uh, atua. Atua are personifications and guardians that um, overrule or, or look out for things that happen in different environments. At the moment, most Māori could tell you seven or eight of those, but uh, as we uncover more information, we're at around 150 different environmental representatives and their roles. Uh, Atua Matua looks at 12 levels of uh, Atua influence and the 12 outcomes that we have as humans that can be learned from knowledge that's collected together from mountains and from water. So if you like, in essence, Atua Matua is ways of knowing, learning and practicing that come directly from the environment. How does movement relate to knowledge in your framework? I could talk you to death on this topic. You know that, Katie. So um, I know. Do it. I've got a button every now and then or I'll just get carried away and forget we're even in an interview. But um, <laughs> what's happened uh, around early 1900s, 1908, I think it was, there was the Tohunga Suppression Act passed by our government, which meant that any traditional practices that were conveyed to Māori communities were illegal. And so this information I'm talking about has been gone for, you know, 110 years. Um, we're reinstituting it and saying, well, actually, if you want health to change in someone Māori, um, it can't be about people. So health, in our opinion, has nothing to do with people. Health is more of an understanding of the environments that cause you to be the way you are. And so in our um, country, we have tribal groups that live near mountains, some that are near rivers, some that are on plains, and some that um, are near the, the ocean. And for that tribal group to have survived and flourished, um, they need to understand the environment at its, at its peak and, and know the ways to align to it so that they can survive, um, collect to get together the, the attributes for them to do that, and to um, develop in a way both physiologically, psychologically, and spiritually in ways that um, allow that tribe to align best. And that's what we've done, um, albeit subconsciously for quite a few. They don't know that they have the muscularity, the intellect, um, even the skin color and, and, and stature that's required to exist best in that place, but we have. And so this discussion that, um, and the, the framework that I built was to um, contextualize why 
not what we do, but why we would engage or not, and use that as the basis for making changes. Because, um, and I think this is probably the same for non-Indigenous groups, um, our biggest issues are um, recruitment and sustainability. That, Firstly, how are we going to get Māori to come through the door and have a look at what we're suggesting? And if they do, how are we going to keep them there? And at the moment, physical activity and health don't do that. They won't sustain effort from Māori, even though intellectually they know it's in their best interest to do that. But after four or five weeks, they're not sustaining effort in those places because it's around the concept that humans are important. And to be blunt, we're not. Uh, We might exist 80 years, but we have mountains that are millions of years old. And in that million or so years, they've collected together a lot of knowledge that has a huge amount of potential benefit for the way we conduct our lives. Um, What we're doing is contextualizing that information better for ways that they can uh, learn and and move forward. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's like health is something that's an anthropocentric perspective, which which means you do something purely to keep yourself well. But if you don't identify as being the most important thing in your environment, then pursuing health for that reason makes no cultural sense. Is that right? Yeah, well, there's a chap, um, and there's a number of different models around this, but a well-known one from education is a chap, Brom from Brennan, that talks about the socio-ecological model that begins with the learner or in the health context, the, the patient at the center and everything else should be structured around them for them to be able to improve. We don't think that's the case at all. Uh, the environment's at the center mm. and every other aspect spins out from that ending in the individual out on the periphery sometimes, if they're smart enough, understanding what it is water and mountains are trying to teach them and stars incidentally too, actually. And by that, I mean that, um, it's not as though you have to have, uh, well, in some ways you do, I suppose, but at the moment, most Māori are wearing the wrong sets of glasses and have the wrong hearing aid on, so they can't hear what water's trying to do. But if you sit next to the ocean or, or a, a burbling river, um, what happens after half an hour is you feel more relaxed, you feel um, reinvigorated and ready to go on to do something else but can't quite put your finger on or verbalize what it is that's occurring that form of language that's coming from a river when it's slowly burbling away there is a form of healing now, I, don't, I don't want to get into that space of thinking that you know i'm um a little bit way out there that i can talk to rivers it's not that case at all um, if you want to have it in a more um, concrete form it means that when we go to the river If I want to improve agility, then I understand the knowledge base that caused the rock to be a smooth shape so that I can move my feet across it and cause agility to be shown in me. Now, River did that, not not me, but I have the potential to benefit in the way that I might play a sport because I understand that a river caused that round shape by its flowing across it. So movement is not really separatable? From knowledge in that way, right? No, that's an interesting part there that some of the early um, uh, intellectuals, if you want to call them that, um, Descartes, um, uh, a number of other Greek authorities on this sought to separate the mind-body-soul mm-hmm. concept. As Māori, we, we didn't believe you could, that um, all of them were interlinked and that uh, when 
you engaged with the environment. Um, there's a spiritual, there's a, a psychological and a, and a physical aspect of that place and of us, and that each one of those um, lines of thinking can connect up. Mostly what happens is people try and connect up at a physical level, but they don't understand what um, psychological, and spiritual is probably the wrong um, term for ways that we connect to um, environments. But in essence, when we're talking about spirit, we're talking about um, an ability to connect up to the essence of a place. Now, for example, um, one of the things I see a lot in surfers is that people think that they're looking for the perfect wave when they go out surfing. We don't think they are. They're looking for the essence of the representative of the place that comes from the ocean. And once you understand the personality trait of the atua, of the ocean, then you'll be able to stand up on a wave, which is a representation of pure essence that comes from the ocean. And that's what you're looking for. Not a wave. It's just an expression of essence. Now, I have that as a quote to talk about later because that really stood out for me when you were talking when I heard you speak at the Ancestral Health Conference, and the quote is, even some surfers think that they're out searching for a perfect wave, but from a Maori perspective, they're not at all. They're searching for the life force that the ocean represents. End quote. That was you, by the way. Was it? it was beautiful. <laughs> it was great. This is fantastic. Sound like me. <laughs> it sounds exactly like you. And then uh, there's this... So I'm, st- I'm, I'm actually processing what you're saying right now, but I'm, my mouth is going to say something else, which is not unique for me at all. So the quote that I pulled, and there's a lot of videos of you out there. So if anyone wants to sit and listen and kind of let these ideas wash over you, you've done plenty on YouTube, which are great. But the quote is, at the moment, we are practicing someone else's model of what health looks like. At the moment, we're focusing on health as something we have to pursue Health should be an incidental outcome. It should be something that pops out at the other end when you understand ancestral knowledge. So my question for you is, do you think, well, I'm just going to put like air quotes around outside or your, your natural setting, your environment is required to understand ancestral knowledge? No, not at all. Um, uh, as your husband knows, I'm half Irish. I'm from Aramar. That's true. So there's part of me that has a tendency to want to understand um, the Irish landscape and mm-hmm. the way that's caused me to be uh, and have certain personality traits. Um, one of the things that I often hear from New Zealanders, as in non-Indigenous people that live here as well, is um, how does this affect me? What does this mean to me if I'm a New Zealander? And, and often what I'll say to them is that Um, Whether you're Indigenous or not, you have experiences from when you're four or five years old of connecting to a beach or a lake or a river or a mountain um, that cause you to want to continue to return to that place. And it's those um, experiences that are universal right across all humans that um, we make connections to people and sometimes to places. But what I'm suggesting is that connection to place um, is in a space that has longevity, that will continue to drive us to return over and over and over. And I think what happens, and I've used this as an example with some of the Maori communities I've worked with, is that uh, in in a coastal town I was working at, I had two boys come to me. They said, oh, we want to do the Boston Marathon. I said, oh, great. Are you from Boston? 
They said, no. <laughs> so what are you going there for? Um, they said, well, that sounded like the idea. I said, do you know your own mountain? Do you know your own area? Have you run over the, these places first and got the experience of the knowledge base that can come from your own mountain? No. Okay, let's start there. So uh, we started and I said, each morning we're going to run up there, but we're going to change the reason that we're there. So the first morning was there because we wanted a physical hit from it. And I said, that's okay. We'll run up, up until you get tired, run on spot, carry on a little bit more. The second day I said, we're here for a psychological experience. So today we're not going to run the track. We're going to run straight and whatever you come across, you deal with. So on the way from our house to the mountain, there's a river. So I said, we don't go across the bridge, you go through the middle of it. The third day was about the essence or life force of the place. And what we found on the um, mountain was that there'd been locations where um, particular formations had developed. There were places where um, waterfalls were flowing. There were places where there were natural divots that were big enough for us to lie down. in. So that's what we did. We went there, we lay down, and we talked about um, our connections to place, our connections to why we were doing the things we were doing. But each time we did it, it was creating a connection to a place. Now, as Māori, we can show a more recent historical ancestral connection to that that quite a few non-Indigenous can't. But my point is that you still have those same feelings. You still have those experiences there. You may not be able to verbalise them, and ironically, neither can ours, neither can Māori, but you still have that connection to place that is equally as valuable as non-Indigenous. The way you uh, discuss that with others is different. Um, and sometimes what I see happening is non-Indigenous people trying to claim Indigenous processes theirs, and especially information. I said, that's not right. You can't do that part. But you can talk about the similarities between the way you engage with a place and the way that someone Indigenous does as well. It's not to say that one's better or worse, but I do, because my way is definitely better. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to be right. You're the expert, right? You have to say it how it is. Well, no, no. When I say that, um, my understanding of my river from my district is is mine, and it's the way I do it. So for me, it has to be the best way. But all mm. I can do for other people is show them examples of that. And that's what the videos and the discussions are, is an attempt to show a model of examples that contextualize the way I think. Mm-hmm. And once I understand why I think some in a particular manner, the rest of it's quite easy. But until I can get to that, why do I do the things I do? Then if I try and add in more, what about a CrossFit or what about a running program? It's not going to work because there's no contextual relevance for why I would sustain effort in that place. And non-Indigenous are exactly the same here that unless you can prove why you connect and why it might be relevant, um, the chances of you carrying on are very slim. And if it was for health's sake or for physical activity, none of us would be getting overweight and none of us would be unfit. We'd all be fine, but we're not. So in essence, what we have to pursue is the knowledge that's represented by different environments. And that's universal for sure. You said once, and which blew me away, because I see people and, and by looking at them and the way that they move, I can tell where within their body they have been and maybe where they're going in the future if all things continue as is. As a bio biomechanist, it's like looking at everything like a building and saying, well, when this pace 
when this is this is starting to eke this way, I can see that movement. So I know by the time you add a hundred thousand of those, and this next structure will shift this way. But you had said that when you look at someone, you can tell if they're from a place with mountains or ocean or river. So could you talk about that a little bit? Because I found that fascinating, grounding. And so I just wanted to hear you say a little bit more about it. Oh, that's a surprise to me. I didn't think you were even listening to me most of the time I was talking Wait, because I was just like flapping here. I'm sorry, what? Did you say <laughs> something? <laughs> yeah, what's that noise? So um, when I was discussing those ideas, it's that subconsciously we tend to reflect the attributes and personality traits of environmental representatives as Māori. And we personify environments for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them is that if we do that, um, we have obligations to it, mm-hmm. which means we can't we can't leave it behind. We can't understand our existence without knowing those places. But we've been forced into a space where we do that at the moment because we're trying to use the New Zealand government version of what health looks like. And in that space, you don't acknowledge the environment. You forget all of that, and it's about you as a human. And we're saying, well, that's actually a load of crap. Um, secondly, um, when it comes to understanding the reasons that you've developed the way you are, um, there's some consistent aspects that continue to show themselves in people from certain places. Uh, some of these things that, um, and some of them are tongue in cheek as well, but we laugh and, and, and my grandparents and from that era backwards, um, they were very astute at being able to pick where someone was from before they even spoke about what their tribal area was. But uh, in general, we have some of those traits. Um, if we're, and I'm from a river, I'm from the Waikato River, which is in the central North Island of New Zealand, and it's um, it's a big, strong, flowing river that comes off one of the um, central mountains as well, in the central plateau. And I tend to have the personality traits that have come from a river that um, I'll listen to people for a while. I'll put up with it, put up with it, and then I'll go around them or over them, but I'm carrying on. So I'll continue to um, postulate and and, uh, espouse certain ideas to get to the end point that I'm after, which is, in this case, um, looking at what uh, benefits we might be able to glean from understanding the environment. So that's my main driver. Even though I can't use health and physical activity in that discussion, um, I would like our people and especially our tribal groups to last longer. Five weeks ago, my brother died at 53 and my father died at 46. So our people don't make it very long at the moment. So we're trying to, in essence, make sure that we have more longevity and through the pursuit of knowledge that comes from an environment, make sure that our tribal groups strengthen their genetic material by understanding the things that cause us to think a certain way. So I think in essence, um, being able to understand why a person will react a certain way, why they'll reflect the place they come from. Another funny example is, and I tease them often about this, is that the ones that come from the coast is um, we have a, a monthly cycle of concepts called the maramataka, and you can find these online and you can read about them. And what they are is that in districts, Maori would put up each month, depending on the lunar cycle, which days were better for planting, which days were better for fishing. And what I've been proposing lately is which days are better for certain types of physical activity, 
depending on lunar cycles. So um, these are hundreds and hundreds of years old, the ones that we use for hunting and fishing and so on and gardening. Um, but they haven't been applied to human performance um, in a long time, and we're reinstituting that. And these are things like on days where we have um, an incoming tide arriving on sunrise means that we're bringing new nutrients, and then we have the sudden ar- arise uh, or arrival of a full-blown sun. Um, that we're those are double-powered days, and so we're good for producing power outputs. Versus other days when the moon is waning and we don't celebrate the death of the moon as Māori, we um, tend to have quiet periods during that, that those are rehab days. Mm-hmm. And yeah. on other days we have agility. On other days we have quickness training. On other days we have uh, balance and coordination. So each lunar day changes in terms of what we can um, show as an output. And my point is, and my example here, is that for fellows that live near the, the coast, we often tease them and say that, well, we can't afford to come and meet with you on an outgoing tide because you're not going to be there. Intellectually, you're not interested. But if it's an incoming tide, you're happy for new information to be brought into your community, and they are. But what we say about them sometimes is that they're only good for 12 hours. (laughs) 12 hours, they're the other 12, they're gone, they're somewhere else. Well, you're a river, and the quote I have is, I'm from a river. I, the way I deal with things is to go around them or to wear them down, which I love. But let's talk about your bike trip. What are what are your favorite modes of movement, the ones that connect you the most? Um, well, I think cycling is probably the dopiest of all of them because you're in one position with your neck stuck out and your um, lower body's doing everything and your upper body's doing bugger all. However, um, I grew up in a really mountainous area, which didn't quite suit my background as a river, but um, there are a number of alpine rivers that were coming off those. So I spent a lot of time up in those places looking at rivers and getting out into the far reaches of alpine areas, and a mountain bike suited me to do that. So I learned from a really young age that I could access more information subconsciously again. I didn't actually know what it was I was looking for, and I've only really been in the last seven or eight years being able to verbalize what it was that it achieved. but um, I, I like the idea of being able to use a mountain bike for the mountain's sake and not for the bike's mm-hmm. sake. And often a lot of the people I work with will tell me how new the technology is on their bike, and I couldn't really give a rat's backside. It's got wheels and it goes round, and that's lovely. We've got to stay grounded in the idea that a mountain bike will connect you to mountains in much the same way as an outrigger canoe will allow me to experience the ocean and the sea. So they are mediums for delivery. And with the concepts we've been promoting around Atua Matua frameworks is that in the past, um, our Ministry of Health and Education has presumed that to deliver any interventions aimed at Indigenous people, they have to use Indigenous or Māori um, methodologies and, and modes of transport to deliver that. And there were only four. Um, and, for example, that was um, outrigger canoes, kapaka performing arts, modako, which is a, um, a form of stick fighting, and um, mamo, which is like a, a type of martial arts. What I've been suggesting is that the medium is just that. It's a medium for the delivery of concepts that come from a Maori origin. So I can, um, for example, I've been teaching through snowboarding and skateboarding um, Māori assessment procedures by having groups of three people 
And in those group of three, one of them is going to experience what we call, and it's come from my name, um, Ihi, where you'll be on the edge of a mountainside looking off the edge and you'll be crapping your pants, thinking, I might die, but I might be able to do it. Wow, have we gone to uh, snowboarding before? It seems like you just read my mind. Um, no, <laughs> not sure. But the second person, this another interesting one, they're watching the other person and they're called the wiki phase. And the mm-hmm. wiki is where you feel fear for someone else because you're not sure if they've got the capacity to pull off what they think they can. But you're going to watch anyway. It's kind of like that train crash stuff. You think, I'm going to watch and see what happens. <laughs> and there's another person in the wanna phase. They're watching the interaction between you two, the ihi and wiki phase. Now, what happens is that uh, the person starts or doesn't, but 10 minutes later, there's a discussion between the three of the things that went on, and it's an assessment procedure that comes from Mavi. The medium, the delivery is um, snowboarding, but the snowboarding doesn't matter. It's Mm -hmm. the knowledge that the mountain caused to happen in all three of them because they're on the side of a mountain, and if the mountain wasn't there, none of this would have begun. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, beautiful. Never been called that before. People just look at me as though I'm a bit odd, Katie. We call you beautiful behind your back after you've left, is what we say. Yeah, that happens. <laughs> it, does, it does happen sometimes. Well, I, and I'm thinking, you know, these these modes that you're talking about to me. I've I've heard you talk about, you know, the relationship of your mountain bike with the mountains, and I also think of you, the river. It gives you such a fluid, a fluid downhill motion too. At least the downhill part where you can still still be a river even on the mountain you know you're still a river you're still riverish moving down a mountain but let's talk i want to talk about your bike trip for a second because to me that adds the medium the medium was cycling that you used to go check out the water of your people so can you talk about just give us a a little information about what the trip entailed and what the purpose of it was and maybe what the experience of it was um, well, there's a couple of things that come up there. Um, one of them was, you know, you were just talking about my background as um, if it was snowboarding, but I also use mountain biking. They kind of connect to rivers and so on. But um, depending on which area you're from, when you talk about uh, water, we have uh, ways of showing a genetic connection between humans to those places. And uh, if I'm from um, a mountain area, then what I talk about is that there's a god of storms that produces the first snowflake that becomes the first raindrop. And as Māori, um, we talk about the life essence of water and that it, for everything that it touches, it removes some of that life essence until you get to the polluted form that has no life essence. And when you step into that as a human, that's what causes you to lose life essence from you into that water and it's why we see it as a dangerous place to be because it has to balance itself as water and it's trying to do that now why i'm telling you this is that when that rainfall drop falls and then it touches um the earth then it shifts into another phase that makes it um palatable and ready for humans to engage with that then turns into the first um what we call the kuinga um which is the first drops coalescing into a stream and then it becomes the awa which is the river then it becomes the roto which is the lake then it becomes the whanga which is the harbour then it becomes the tai which is the ocean and what i've just told you there is for a mountain person it gives uh, the hierarchical preference to the mountain of the origin of water 
because it formed from the first drop that touched the mountain, but it ends in the ocean. If I'm from the ocean and I live on a coastal area, I'm going to start from the other end and have Tangaroa, the god of the ocean, at the top of that hierarchy and move in a different way of explaining what causes an, um, water to form. Mm-hmm. So fr- fr- from an ocean person's perspective, everything ends up being salt water. Because no matter where it is, it's going to end up out in the ocean, and the ocean becomes the culmination of all forms of water. And as Māori, we we acknowledge quite a few different types of water. Um, we have uh, water that's in swamps. Um, that's um, Waidopo. Um, we have water that's in um, areas where there's estuaries. Um, we have puna, which are water that, that comes up out of the ground. And incidentally, those puna that we have, we would use them for different activities. So some were for healing, some were for um, post-warfare, for cleansing. Some of them were our equivalent to Gatorade that we would use them before we were going to do physical activity. Um, Each one of those um, springs was used for a different uh, activity and and, and rationale. We have different types of um, ocean water, depending on the color of it. Um, we have different colors of lake water and ocean water, depending on which wind is interacting with it. Now, if we have a southerly wind, because um, in the southern hemisphere, the, the cold winds come out of the south, not like the north for you. But when we have a south wind come in, it changes water to a dark black before it arrives. So we know which wind is on the way by the color that we see change in the water body that we're sitting next to. So we use them as predictors for how our personality traits will therefore change because when a southerly comes, we start to hunch our shoulders and close down because we know the cold is on its way. Hmm. So you can see the connection between all those different forms of water. And there's, there's a whole range more. In fact, one of the things that happened with the Ministry of Health here is they talk about um, whole water which is a, a, a new word for, for health, and oranga, order is to live in, uh, that's another way of looking at health. There's not much discussion of that in a pre-European context. What we talked about was te wai ora wotane. Wai is water, so it's the life essence that comes from water. So pre-European times, we were very interested in water and what it caused in us. Now that bike trip we're talking about there, 2016, um, I rode from the top of the North Island to the bottom of the South using a fairly convoluted pathway, which was 3,000 kilometres. And each day, I'd ride a minimum of 100 kilometres, and I would want to look at a different land-based explanation for why an environment did what it did. So those were connected to mountains, and the mountain bike was a really useful um, medium to deliver that. This most recent one, which I finished last week, was traveling the length of the island again, but trying to use uh, more water-based interactions. So sometimes I'd ride, sometimes I'd um, paddle, sometimes I'd swim. Um, They were different ways of understanding what water was doing and its uh, personality traits and how we reflected those. So um, again, it was, you know, several thousand kilometers. It was um, trying to understand um, why water affects us in the way it does. The last phase of this is in 2020, is a star connection. Um, 
as Māori, we explain all of our environment, environmental connections through land, water, and stars. So the final phase is to be able to navigate to different places using star or constellation suggestions or, or alignments or philosophies to understand why people are the way they are as well. Is that okay? Yeah. Will you do another one, do you think? So you did one for mountains, one for water. I was just thinking you, you don't really need to do one for stars, but I wonder what it would – do the stars change as you – Yes, no, absolutely. So we, I would do another one for stars, but mm. probably what I would do with that one is um, show a collection of videos that are spread across a year. Mm. Uh, for example, one of the things that I talk to um, schools about at the moment is the idea that we can get um, risk assessment based on what shifts we see in our environments. At the moment, most schools tend to use uh, a meteorological service where they go online and it tells them what weather's coming. I said in the past we didn't have internet, so we used a system of understanding, for example. This is a reasonably simplified version of it, but we had five indicators that we would follow from the environment. One of them was uh, looking at insects, another one was looking at birds, another one was trees, another one was fish, and the last one was star movements or what was happening in the atmosphere. Now that um, last phase of looking at what stars do, for example, um, we can predict um, weather changes based on which stars have um, shrouds or have halos or have changes in them that will help us predict two weeks ahead, sometimes further. And we're trying to teach our children to be able to read what those signs are and they can feed that back to us via a risk assessment um, process about whether they should leave the school grounds to engage with outdoor education. So it's it's reasonably simple to us, but some are finding that one a bit of a struggle to get their heads around. But it's quite cool stuff, and, and our kids are really enjoying it. Um, so one of the schools that I work with up in the north of where I am here, we've got a bunch of spiders that we've asked the janitor to leave on the school grounds, and we read those spiders fairly regularly. One of them is that um, if we pull the spider web apart, then go off and do an exercise and come back, how much of it's been rebuilt gives us a measurement of time that's come from the insect that's based in that area. Um, we also use it for tracking people so that we can see how many bikes have been through an area because mm. if they go down one pathway, then the cobweb will still be there um, uh, versus a, one where it's been broken if they've traveled down that path. Spiders. For us, they have three different web types, so we can see from that which type of um, vehicle is being used. So if they have the sheet web that lays on the ground, if we look early in the morning, we can see how many people have passed over it. It's pretty basic stuff to us, but there's a lot of people that have forgotten how to do that. But in essence, those bike rides and pedaling and so on is to reintroduce that information back into Māori communities. So from those bike rides, the aim was, 100 kilometers a day, 3,000 k's over 30 days, connect it to maramataka that shows us what lunar effects might be happening to us physically and show a video of environmental science that uh, coordinates or explains um, occurrences across a month from a Maori perspective. Did you do it by yourself or did you take a group or lead a group? I did it by myself because I'm not that sociable. Uh, <laughs> 
and not that easy to get along with. That's true. I totally vouch for that. Both cases. Yeah. Was there any standout moments, you know, doing it? Like, did you, I'm not going to say find what you are looking for, but did you discover information or knowledge that you wouldn't have otherwise known? Um, well, it's, it's a funny um, situation with the environment. Often what you're looking for isn't in the place where you would suspect it being because we have a particular way of expecting knowledge mm -hmm. to be presented to us that we've learned from institutes such as schools about how information is unloaded. Um, the environment has a different way of uh, teaching you that is often uh, convoluted and odd in the way that it delivers at times when you don't expect it to and in mediums or domains that you weren't focused on but make the connections to. Before this, um, I'll explain this one a little more. Um, those lads that were wanting to go and uh, run the Boston Marathon, um, they ended up running quite a few local mountains and then some national level mountains that were big ones and doing, you know, eight and 10 hour runs. These are boys that are in you know, 140 kilos. They're big lads, big Maori boys that had never run further than down to the local shop and back. Um, but the motivation for them was they wanted to pursue higher and higher levels of knowledge. And that didn't mean running to the top of a mountain and standing on the head of an ancestor and saying, I've conquered you. I said, that's a non-indigenous process that we've got nothing to do with. But through the process of heading up the side of that mountain, the mountain will have different steepnesses that will challenge you about whether you have the right to access the next level of knowledge. And so a mountain will lay itself out with ways that you can recover, ways that are steep to filter whether that can get delivered to you. Now, those um, lads that I had that were um, looking at uh, how they could engage with the environment and in ways to understand things better, they came there for themselves initially, wanting to lose weight and get physically healthy. And I said to them, it's not sustainable, otherwise you would have done it before and you would have made some changes. But I said, what about if we look at say 20 different soil types or 20 different surfaces and we record the sound your feet makes when you move across wet grass, across gravel, across sand when uh, there's a big swell and there's a wave coming in that will cover the sound of your feet every three or four seconds and then you'll hear your feet come back in and then it'll cover it again. I said, so why don't we go out and try and record 20 different soundtracks from diff 20 different um, soil types and, and surfaces and then review those at the end and see if we can define which place it was we were at. Now, the incidental outcome of that is that they learned to run, but it was never what we were actually after was to make them feel better or healthier or better runners. It was the pursuit of the knowledge about what sound was produced by their feet when they moved across and interacted directly through their feet with a different source of land. And my point is, they're always bloody long points, I'm afraid, Katie. It's, there's never a short explanation. Um, I found that information in gardening. I was looking at Maramataka, gardening came up, and it led me on to the idea of, wow, Māori explained 45 different types of soil. There were something like 10 different types of clay. Red, blue, yellow, some with gravel, some with sand. And I was thinking, 
I didn't know the names or the intent of all of those different types of soil, but my application of it was I'd like to know what they do, how they interact with each other, and more importantly, what happens when I move across them. But the incidental outcome was, if I did 20 days of recording, I would have four weeks of running from five days a week of taking these people out. And after a month of running, it's self-sustaining. As I understand it, your perspective was created and it's geared for the Maori people and the needs of your indigenous people maintaining their ancestral knowledge. Did you also write it for yourself? Like, did you gather more insight as you were assembling the framework? Like, which came first? Like, did you sit down to write a framework or was it just you're out in the garden and you have this experience and then you recognize it needs to be included in the framework? Uh, it was a funny situation. You know, I've been an outdoor educator for more than 30 years um, and not knowing that I was being taught all the time and having a couple of close calls where um, nearly didn't make it home and thought, wow, nearly died today. That was a close one. <laughs> but realizing that I was trying or this, the, the environment was trying to teach me life lessons and you have to be open to those when they occur. And I wasn't until seven or eight years ago when I went to a Maori community and, and I said, well, we're going to do this for physical training today. And one of them says, why? There's no food there. I'm not going there. Can't see the point of it. I said, well, fair enough. And then as it pushed further and further on, um, one of the communities said, I'll engage in some of these activities if they have a connection to my ancestral understanding of that place. So that kicked me off into introducing or reintroducing traditional Maori games. And we had some, one called Ki Orahi. This is bloody interesting, this one. It was sponsored by McDonald's into 31,000 schools in the US in 2004 to be taught because uh, they, they sponsored three indigenous games to be taught in schools. Māori here had never heard of the game because it had been long gone for over 100 years. I started teaching it um, gee, 18 years ago and there wasn't much interest in it. When I hit a Māori community and started teaching them, they got it straight away. And the, why it was interesting to McDonald's and to um, non-indigenous is it's one of the very few games in the world that has two teams playing against each other but with completely different outcomes that they're trying to achieve. One side of the team is trying to touch a, a post that's in the middle. The other side are trying to touch seven posts that are around the outside and come into the middle to, for a touchdown. Those seven posts represent the seven stars of what we call Matariki, which I think you call Subaru or Pleiades. So there was a whole range of higher-level knowledge they were teaching through the game. And that's what people were actually after, was the knowledge base of why we would do something. Now, the interesting part about um, trying to get these fellas reintroduced to some of these old games was that they didn't know that that was what they were after, but it felt as though when they engaged with these traditional knowledge bases, health and physical activity came more easily because knowledge became the centre for why we were there. It became the overarching principle for why we would engage with each other through the environment. And so after a time of thinking about the way I'd actually been making it worse for Maori communities by trying to teach institutionalized views of what physical activity looked like, 
it changed me because these people said, I'm not doing it. So I had to reinvent a way of engaging with communities that wasn't about health or physical activity. And as a consequence, this Atua Matua and this new framework that I wrote, I wrote it for my own uses to ensure that I had an authentic way of connecting to communities that didn't have anything to do with health or physical activity. So when I first wrote it, I didn't expect anyone to read it. Hmm. And I'm still surprised. And I know that quite a few people struggle with it. So out of nine out of 10 people that have read it said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And it's just too complex. There's too much information. And it seems like you're just talking out your backside. Well, <laughs> in a lot of ways, I don't actually care. Because it only has to mean something to me because my particular lens has come from a river. So the examples I present are, if I was in this situation, looking at it from a river knowledge perspective, this is how I would react. This is a model for you to maybe apply as a mountain person or as an ocean person that might convert what you're trying to do into those same incidental outcomes that could affect the change at a health or physical activity level but with a focus on environmental knowledge first. And that's the essence of it. Is I wrote it to try and sort out my own crap. And I don't know if it made it worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're almost out of time, but I know that other people are using the framework or are considering it, or you're helping other people apply it, other indigenous populations maybe, or maybe even other areas who are Maori. So who are you working with? And if there are people out there who want help with in their own communities or have you come as a speaker, where can they find you? Well, funnily enough, at that ancestral conference that I went to, um, I wasn't even sure why I was there. Nice ideas and so on, but I'm not sure that I'd align with it and didn't know what the intent was for inviting me. Um, and I enjoyed it. And they're great people and so on but I wasn't sure whether we would be in phase or not. Some of them were. Some of them weren't quite sure what I was up to. Um, it just depends on that state of or, or phase at which you are and whether you're ready to um, assume this mantle. To be able to take on environmental knowledge takes a shift in your head to be able to see things for what they might intend. It's a bit like that matrix moment of the red pill and the blue pill. You can carry on doing physical activity and health pursuits the way you are now and be moderately successful. But if you take the red pill, it'll take you down the rabbit hole and you'll find out a whole range of stuff you never knew. And it opens up a whole world of information and approaches that um, give you a new insight into why you might do something. That, in essence, is why I've been following this pathway is that I'm not sure where this rabbit hole is going to go but I'm enjoying the process because it has more contextual relevance to the communities I work with and to the way I conduct myself and my roles of trying to uh, promote health to Māori. As far as that's concerned and working with other communities, um, there's a number of videos that are on YouTube under Atua Matua. There's a mobile Wānanga Facebook page called the Mobile Wānanga with Dr. Ihi. Um, and there's a bunch of information on there as well. Um, I'm teaching people how to build Google Earth virtual tours that show locations in their district, which pre-European um, Atua used to exist there, and how we can obtain physical activity and nutrition 
from those ancestral bodies of knowledge, but deliver it via a, uh, a medium that's come from Google Earth and is digital. So those are going out at the moment. I've been funded to um, develop those for four schools in South Auckland. That's a three-year program. Um, the other ancestral chap I was talking about, Z from the ancestral meeting, he's working with a group of powerlifters in San Diego and applying a maramataka um, lens to the way he's asking his powerlifters to lift on certain days and not others. So that's aligning with lunar movements. Um, I'm working with groups in Japan. Um, that have had the Shinto religion, which follows the environment and has been lost to a certain degree, and they're interested in what we're doing here. Uh, I'm working with groups in Ireland. Um, they've just visited. They've been developing their version of Atua approaches, which are called the um, Triskala, which is a, a, a set of three spirals that talk about different aspects of their lives and how they can engage with the environment better. Um, and a number of First Nation groups in the states that are starting to engage with some of these ideas. Uh, Non-Indigenous academics are accessing this through systems dynamics because when we talk about genetic connections that start from an environment and end in a human, uh, those align really closely with systems concepts. So uh, I've just put up a paper for review that does uh, a, a comparison or an investigation of what systems dynamics does and what an atua matua approach does and how they um, mirror each other fairly closely. So there's a bunch of information floating around out there. It's humbling that people would want to read it. I never intended anyone to. Often when they ring me and quiz me and want to know what it was I was talking about, I'm fairly abrupt and so I don't actually have to explain myself to you. You're going to have to give the red pill. People want the red pill now, so you're the guy. Yeah, well, maybe. I'm uh, reasonably sure a lot don't. They actually want the blue pill and don't want enough. <laughs> they think they want the red pill, but they really just want a slightly purple blue pill. <laughs> well, we can handle what we can handle. Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay, well, thank you very, very, very much. I am not an indigenous person, but I would like to say thank you for your work because I feel like it enriches my my experience. So thank you for that. And also thank you for taking time out of the things that you are working on for your communities to do this for mine. I am also very appreciative. I know your time is valuable. I have to say that your family, when they came to visit here, was the easiest and um, most gracious of guests we've had. Um, you didn't want to sleep inside, which was a new one for us, but was more than welcome. We've got a, a sleeping area with a camping site outside our place, and um, it was cool to see people understand the benefits of being able to stay in the forest next to our house rather than in the house. Um, and we really enjoyed having you here. And I think the work you're doing and the way you engage with people and the innovation and creativity you're um, espousing and connecting with is um, fairly unique. And no wonder you have the followers you do. Um, I hadn't met you before you arrived in New Zealand. I was somewhat suspicious because you're talking about being a biomechanist. And I, I've um, always been relatively cynical of some of the ways they think about people first, um, but was 
thoroughly motivated and encouraged to try and find out more about your work and the people you work with and have no problems um, working alongside things that you're doing and and even the work that we've done this morning. So the privilege is ours and I appreciate and am humbled by the fact that you would ask me to speak to you today. Oh, thank you very much. Grateful, grateful to you and you're all, your whole family is so gracious and the space was amazing and to get to watch that sun come up, it was just spectacular. And the slide, the, the epic water slide, my kids will will never will never be pleased for the rest of their life until we get back to your house where they can ride a proper water slide. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that um, quite a few parents around here have a different view because that's of the number of broken collarbones, but that's good to hear. We came out unscathed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Again, that was Dr. Iheheke. He is a health and physical education consultant in New Zealand. I will link to some of what he was discussing, including he has a Facebook that was dedicated to the bike ride. He used to explore concepts of traditional Maori well-being through a Maori perspective. And I'll link to as many other things as he was talking about as I can. Before I go, I've got one more question. Katie, I am 30 and have had shoulder and neck pain and tension almost as long as I can remember. It's been suggested to me in the past that swimming might help my shoulders, which besides their tension and pain, also great pop with almost any sort of rotational movement and have since I was 14 or 15. But until recently, swimming was not available to me as an option because of where I lived. I love swimming, and now that it is available, plan to start it as part of adding to my movements in general. But my question for you is this, as I know you enjoy swimming as well, so it's true. I love water. Are there any movements slash alignments while swimming that someone should seek or avoid to improve or avoid shoulder pain, which would definitely include chest tensions and the whole rest of the body? So, Megan, typically I'd be answering this from a person-centric point of view. So it's like watch your rib thrust in the water, vary your strokes so that a single bout of swimming can move more of you. I'm a wild water swimmer. By preference. But if I'm in a swimming pool, my favorite way to be moving through that pool is just repetitive deep diving, like actually throwing things and not just moving along the surface of the water, but really trying to get myself down low and back up again. Sometimes I'll bind my feet, you know, like pretend like I'm a mermaid, put something around my feet. So I knew I have all kinds of playful ways that I engage in pool swimming, for example, but Ihi has made me want to pause here and suggest something to you, to everyone. What makes swimming, especially wild swimming, which is in natural bodies of water, what makes it possible or not? Is it the safety of the water? What we share the water with? How we've treated the water in the past? How maybe there is no water now in the areas in which we live? How does our lifelong relationship to water and everything really affect how each of our shoulders end up moving through water in a pool, for example, during a bout of swimming. What does the capacity of our shoulders say about our historical relationship to water? Moving through it, we're moving to get it. And what does the current state of our shoulders say about our current relationship and knowledge of water? I'm just going to leave that out there. I'm going to thank Ihi. And also the podcast sponsors 
for this last answer, which is really just a tunnel to a pile of questions that we can continue to consider. So Softstar, Waimayu, Unshoes, Earthrunners, and Venn Design, thank you for sponsoring the question. You can find more about them in our show notes. Peace out, everyone. This has been Move Your DNA with Katie Bowman, a podcast about movement. Hopefully you find the general information in this podcast informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and should not be used as such. 